Chapter Thirteen of Isabel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Isabel, a Romance of the Northern Trail by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Thirteen, The Two Gods. It was little Isabel who pulled McVeigh together, and after a little he rose with her in his arms and turned her from the wall while he covered Dean's face with the end of a blanket. Then he went to the door. The Eskimos were building fires. Pelletier was seated on the sledge a short distance from the cabin, and at Billy's call he came toward him. "'If you don't mind, you can take her over to one of the fires for a little while,' said Billy. "'Scotty is dead. Try and make the chief understand.' He did not wait for Pelletier to question him, but closed the door quietly and went back to Dean. He drew off the blanket and gazed for a moment into the still bearded face. "'My God, and she's waiting for you, and looking for you, and thinks you're coming back soon,' he whispered. "'You and the kid.' Reverently he began the task ahead of him. One after another he went into Dean's pockets and drew forth what he found. In one pocket there was a small knife, some cartridges, and a matchbox. He knew that Isabel would prize these and keep them because her husband had carried them, and he placed them in a handkerchief along with other things he found. Last of all he found in Dean's breast pocket a worn and faded envelope. He peered into the open end before he placed it on the little pile, and his heart gave a sudden throb when he saw the blue flower petals Isabel had given him. When he was done, he crossed Dean's hands upon his breast. He was tying the ends of the handkerchief when the door opened softly behind him. The little dark chief entered. He was followed by four other Eskimos. They had left their weapons outside. They seemed scarcely to breathe as they ranged themselves in a line and looked down upon Scotty Dean. Not a sign of emotion came into their expressionless faces. Not the flicker of an eyelash did the immobility of their faces change. In a low, clacking monotone they began to speak, and there was no expression of grief in their voices. Yet Billy understood now that in the hearts of these little brown men Scotty Dean stood enshrined like a god. Before he was cold in death they had come to chant his deeds and his virtues to the unseen spirits who would wait and watch at his side until the beginning of the new day. For ten minutes the monotone continued. Then the five men turned and without a word, without looking at him, went out of the cabin. Billy followed them, wondering if Dean had convinced them that he and Pelletier were his friends. If he had not done that, he feared that there would still be trouble over little Isabel. He was delighted when he found Pelletier talking with one of the men. "'I've found a flunky here whose lingo I can get along with,' cried Pelletier. "'I've been telling him what bully friends we are, and have made him understand all about Blake.' I've shaken hands with them all three or four times, and we feel pretty good. Better mix a little. 
They don't like the idea of giving us the kid now that Scotty's dead. They're asking for the woman. Half an hour later, McVeigh and Pelletier returned to the cabin. At the end of that time, he was confident that the Eskimos would give them no further trouble and that they expected to leave Isabel in their possession. The chief, however, had given Billy to understand that they reserved the right to bury Dean. Billy felt that he was now in a position where he would have to tell Pelletier some of the things that had happened to him on his return to Churchill. He had reported Dean's death as having occurred weeks before as the result of a fall, and when he returned to Fort Churchill he knew that he would have to stick to that story. Unless Pelletier knew of Isabel, his love for her, and his own defiance of the law in giving them their freedom, his comrade might let out the truth and ruin him. In the cabin they sat down at the table. Pelletier's arm was in a sling. His face was drawn and haggard and blackened by powder. He drew his revolver, emptied it of cartridges, and gave it to little Isabel to play with. He kept up his spirits among the Eskimos, but he made no effort to conceal his dejection now. "'I've lost her,' he said, looking at Billy. "'You're going to take her to her mother?' "'Yes.' "'It hurts. You don't know how it's going to hurt to lose her,' he said. McVeigh leaned across the table and spoke earnestly. "'Yes, I know what it means, Pelly he replied. I know what it means to love someone and lose. I know. Listen. Quickly he told Pelletier the story of the Baron, of the coming of Isabel, the mother, of the kiss she had given him, and of the flight, the pursuit, the recapture, and of that final moment when he had taken the steel cuffs from Dean's wrists. Once he had begun the story, he left nothing untold even to the division of the blue flower petals and the tress of Isabel's hair. He drew both from his pocket and showed them to Pelletier, and at the tremble in his voice there came a mistiness in his comrade's eyes. When he had finished, Pelletier reached across with his one good arm and gripped the other's hand. "'And what she said about the blue flower is coming true, Billy,' he whispered. It's bringing happiness to you, just as she said, for you're going down to her. McVeigh interrupted him. No, it's not, he said softly. She loved him as much as the girl down there will ever love you, Pelly, and when I tell her what has happened, her heart will break. That can't bring happiness for me. The hours of that day bore leaden weights for Billy. The two men made their plans. A number of the Eskimos agreed to accompany Pelletier as far as Eskimo Point, whence he would make his way alone to Churchill. Billy would strike south to the little beaver in search of Couchet's cabin and Isabel. He was glad when night came. It was light when he went to the door, opened it, and looked out. In the edge of the timber line it was black black not only with the gloom of night, but with the concentrated darkness of spruce and balsam, and a sky so low and thick that one could almost hear the wailing swish of it overhead, 
like the steady sobbing of surf on a seashore. It was black, save for the small circles of light made by the Eskimo fires, about which half a hundred of the little brown men sat or crouched. The masters of the camp were all awake, but twice as many dogs, exhausted and footsore, lay curled in heaps, as inanimate as if dead. There was present a strange silence, and a strange and unnatural gloom that was not of the night alone, a silence broken only by the low moaning of the wind out in the barren, the restlessness in the air above the treetops, and the crackling of the fires. The Eskimos were as motionless as so many dead men. Their round, expressionless eyes were wide open. They sat or crouched with their backs to the barren, their faces turned into the still deeper blackness of the forest. Some distance away, like a star, there gleamed the small and steady light in the cabin window. For two hours the eyes of those about the fires had been fixed on that light, and at intervals there had risen from among the stony-faced watchers the little chief, whose clacking voice joined for a few moments each time the wailing of the wind, the swish of the low-hanging sky, and the crackling of the fires. But there was sound of no other voice or movement. He alone moved and spoke, for to the others the clacking sounds he made was speech, words spoken each time for the man who lay dead in the cabin. A dozen times Pelletier and McVeigh had looked out to the fires, and looked each time at the hour. This time Billy said, "'They're moving, Pelly. They're jumping to their feet and coming this way.' He looked at his watch again. "'They're mighty good guessers. It's a quarter after twelve. When a chief or a big man dies, they bury him in the first hour of the new day.' They're coming after Dean. He opened the door and stepped out into the night. Pelletier joined him. The Eskimos advanced without a sound and stopped in a shadowy group twenty paces from the cabin. Five of these little fur-clad men detached themselves from the others and filed into the cabin, with the chief man at their head. As they bent over Dean, they began to chant a low monotone which awakened little Isabel, who sat up and stared sleepily at the strange scene. Billy went to her and gathered her close in his arms. She was sleeping again when he put her down among the blankets. The Eskimos were gone with their burden. He could hear the low chanting of the tribe. "'I found her, and I thought she was mine.' said Pelletier's low voice at his side. "'But she ain't, Billy. She's yours.' McVeigh broke in on him as though he had not heard. "'You better get to bed, Pelly,' he warned. "'That arm needs rest. I'm going out to see where they bury him.' He put on his cap and heavy coat and went as far as the door, then turned back. From his kit he took a belt-axe and nails. The wind was blowing more strongly over the barren, and McVeigh could no longer hear the low lament of the Eskimos. He moved toward their fires, and found them deserted of men, 
only the dogs remaining in their death-like sleep. And then, far down the edge of the timber, he saw a flare of light. Five minutes later he stood hidden in a deep shadow, a few paces from the Eskimos. They had dug the grave early in the evening, out on the great snow plain, free of the trees, and as the fire they had built lighted up in their dark round faces, McVeigh saw the five little black men who had borne forth Scotty Dean leaning over the shallow hole in the frozen earth. Scotty was already gone. The earth and ice and frozen moss were falling in upon him, and not a sound fell now from the thick lips of his savage mourners. In a few minutes the crude work was done, and like a thin black shadow the natives filed back to their camp. Only one remained, sitting cross-legged at the head of the grave, his long narwhal spear at his back. It was Oglakluk, the Eskimo chief, guarding the dead man from the devils who come to steal body and soul during the first few hours of burial. Billy went deeper into the forest until he found a thin, straight sapling, which he cut down with half a dozen strokes of his belt-axe. From the sapling he stripped the bark, and then he chopped off a third of its length and nailed it crosswise to what remained. After that he sharpened the bottom end and returned to the grave, carrying the cross over his shoulder. Stripped to whiteness, it gleamed in the firelight. The Eskimo watcher stared at it for a moment, his dull eyes burning darker in the night for he knew that after this two gods, and not one, were to guard the grave. Billy drove the cross deep, and as the blows of his axe fell upon it, the Eskimo slunk back until he was swallowed in the gloom. When McVeigh was done, he pulled off his cap. But it was not to pray. "'I'm sorry, old man,' he said to what was under the cross. "'God knows I'm sorry.' I wish you was alive. I wish you was going back to her, with the kid, instead of me. But I'll keep that promise. I swear it. I'll do what's right by her." From the forest he looked back. The Eskimo chief had returned to his somber watch. The cross gleamed a ghostly white against the thick blackness of the barren. He turned his face away for the last time and there filled him the oppression of a leaden hand, a thing that was both dread and fear. Scotty Dean was dead, dead and in his grave, and yet he walked with him now at his side. He could feel the presence, and that presence was like a warning, stirring strange thoughts within him. He turned back to the cabin and entered softly. Pelletier was asleep. Little Isabel was breathing the sweet forgetfulness of childhood. He stooped and kissed her silken curls, and for a long time he stood with one of those soft curls between his fingers. In a few years more, he thought, it would be the darker golden brown of the woman's hair, of the woman he loved. Slowly a great peace entered into him. After all, there was more than hope ahead for him. She, the older Isabel, 
knew that he loved her as no other man in the world could love her. He had given proof of that. And now he was going to her. End of chapter 13 Recording by Roger Moline